This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, everyone, all across the world in a hundred and something countries. Laszlo Montgomery here once again with another CHP episode, number 203 this time. And a particularly warm welcome to any new listeners who maybe saw this topic and are joining our little China History Podcast community for the first time. I hope you like what you hear. Finally, everyone who has been imploring me all these years to cover this topic can stop with the emails. Here it is. But here's the thing. I never studied martial arts. I I had friends who did, but I myself never walked down that path. For this reason, uh, I was a little reluctant to take on such a serious topic. Martial arts isn't a religion or anything, but it is a way of life for a lot of people everywhere. So I guess it was out of respect for those who were serious practitioners of martial arts and my hesitation not to let anyone down that Despite this being the most requested topic in CHP history, I hadn't covered it. Until now, that is. You see, I was 12 when The Big Boss came out, 1971, and I was 13 when The Chinese Connection and The Way of the Dragon were released, and 14 when Enter the Dragon hit the screens back in the north suburbs of Chicago, and one of the most important and memorable films of my youth. Billy Jack, also 1971, Tom Laughlin. I never practiced any Kung Fu or Hapkido like Billy Jack did, but, well, I couldn't play the guitar either, but that didn't mean I didn't love to listen to Led Zeppelin. From seeing Bruce Lee for the first time and watching him introduce Kung Fu to America, I couldn't get enough of these martial arts movies, that Kung Fu genre. I was always a fan. I mean, the El Rey channel, I love it. So despite these feelings about Chinese martial arts, I was pretty much destined to be just a spectator. Not the end of the world. I'm still trying to figure out how to do an episode or a series on the whole kung fu genre of movies. I'm not going to get into that in this two-part series, but that's a great topic. In all the decades that I've been living, not a single time, not once, did I ever run into anyone who couldn't stand those kinds of movies where some... Helpless individuals suffering some indignity or humiliation at the hands of antagonizers is saved by some lone hero with his bare hands who subdues these bad guys. I mean, this is a theme that hasn't gone out of style since time immemorial. The triumph of the person in distress, thanks to the modest, unassuming individual with martial arts skills who shows up on the scene and overpowers the bad guys. Well, there's more to it than that, but those heroes were my gateway 
And you don't have to practice martial arts from China or anywhere else in the world to appreciate what it's all about. I have this sneaking suspicion that one or two Wushu enthusiasts are going to tune in and check this episode out. So let me give you an idea about what to expect. First of all, being the China History Podcast and all, this episode is going to be chock full of Chinese names and terms. Over at my website at teacup.media, you could click on the page for the episode and you'll see a downloadable PDF of all the Chinese terms listed. The pinyin, the characters, the English, and where applicable, I've also stuck in the Cantonese romanization. Four columns. Everyone's a winner. I'm going to start off with a little overview of the history of Chinese martial arts. No deep dives, just a flat stone skimming the surface, but by the end of part one, I'm guessing you'll have a full stomach. I can't say you won't have any indigestion later, but if you didn't know much about the Chinese martial arts before, you might be the smartest person in the room wherever you end up tonight. My focus for this part one episode is going to be on the history of the martial arts, and then in part two, I'll zoom in on the history of the Wing Chun style and its most famous grandmaster. This isn't going to be a series that discusses techniques or the merits of one style over another. This is just the history of the people and the times and how Chinese wushu developed. The list of noted martial arts masters from the earliest times to the present day is no less lengthy than the list of painters, calligraphers, philosophers, and other China literary greats. Tracing everything back to the beginning, martial arts at its genesis was something limited to defending oneself, killing animals, or killing people. In the beginning, there was no such thing as martial arts, as entertainment, or as a sport, or something to practice for spiritual and physical health promotion. It was all very practical stuff. Around 9,000 years ago, humans had figured out how to extract copper from ores. Then later on, they figured out how to add anywhere from 5 to 20% of tin to the copper to create humankind's first metal alloy, bronze. And this is around 3500 BCE. And once the whole metal thing got figured out, weapons started to get a lot more deadly and serious and took on a more front and center position in the martial arts. According to legend, Chinese martial arts originated during the mythical Xia Dynasty, 2070 to 1600 BCE. It's written that the Yellow Emperor, whose legendary reign began prior to the Xia in 2698 BCE, introduced the earliest fighting systems to China. The Yellow Emperor, well, he gets credit for so many things. Among them included his role as a general who before becoming China's leader, wrote lengthy treatises on medicine, astrology, and the martial arts. Now, one of the Yellow Emperor's opponents was named Churyo. Churyo, like the Yellow Emperor, comes to us straight out of the Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors period of prehistory. Among other things, Churyo is noted for, besides being one of the several legendary founding fathers of China. He was also a sacred cow, particularly among the Miao ethnic race of people. Here in the U.S., we know the Miao as the Hmong people. Four eyes, six arms, each holding a weapon more terrible than the other. Many called him a god of war. Liu Bang, 
gave an offering to Chiryo on the eve of his final showdown with Xiang Yu. It was the Yellow Emperor who faced down Chiryo at the Battle of Zhuo Lu, the Zhuo Lu Zhizhan, 2500 BCE, Masomenos. Now, one additional accolade ascribed to Chiryo is that he was the creator of Jiao Di. Jiao Di is probably the oldest known form of wrestling in China. The term Jiao Di means to headbutt. Jiao means horn, so perhaps the fighters, as they grappled with each other, wore headgear with horns attached. Now, this style of Jiao Di fighting goes back as much as 5,000 years, Chiryo's time. Today, there are hundreds of styles of Chinese martial arts, but in its most ancient forms, there were just two. The one I just mentioned, Jiao Di, and the other was called Shuai Jiao. Shuai Jiao today is the Chinese word for wrestling, but back in the day, it was a very distinct form of martial arts. It got broken down later on into Beijing, Tianjin, Shanxi, and Baoding styles. Martial arts in these Bronze Age, Iron Age times was almost exclusively about combat and how best to execute it. There was no one-size-fits-all regimen or style of fighting yet. Of course, there were variations in styles and techniques, but nobody was treating this yet as a standalone art for which treatises and other literary works were being written. In fact, the proliferation of styles we know of today really didn't emerge until the Yuan and Ming dynasties, 1200s to mid-1600s. That was when so many of the great masters began teaching. Of course, much of what was being taught was known for centuries, but only this late in the game were these martial arts being named, organized, and sorted out for better understanding. Some parts of this most ancient period of recorded Chinese history are lost to us forever. The books didn't make it, but a lot of legends did get passed down, and the masters and grandmasters who came later would hearken back to this violent age and the battles and good deeds of the knights, and perhaps they'd attempt to tie some aspect of their style of fighting or its origins to this fabled time. Nothing gave a style of wushu more respect than being able to claim such an ancient provenance. The three Bronze Age dynasties in China, the mythical Xia, the Shang, and the Zhou, this was the most primitive age for Chinese martial arts. The Zhou was founded by King Wen, Zhou Wen Wang, and in addition to overthrowing the Shang and establishing the Zhou dynasty, he also gave us the eight trigrams, as mentioned in that past episode covering the Yi Jing, the Ba Gua, from which we get Ba Gua Zhang, Zhang meaning palm of one's hand, eight trigram palm, Ba Gua, the eight trigrams. We'll mention uh, Ba Gua Zhang later on. Around 500 BC is when the Chinese figured out how to carburize iron and later steel, which led to longer and deadlier swords. And with that, another art that emerged from the Zhou dynasty, China's feudal age, was the art of sword play, or jianfa. Once swords were incorporated into the Chinese arsenal of weapons, it too became a practiced martial art. And during the Han dynasty, spears were added to the master swordsman's dances and performances. And martial arts dances, these routines carried out by all soldiers, were practiced even during the Bronze Age dynasties. Martial arts, dancing, and sword play, well, you 
still alive today, more than 2,000 years of history and practice. The Li Ji, the Book of Rites, attributed to the Duke of Zhou, one of the most sacred names in Chinese history to come out of that age, and son of King Wen. It mentions drills and training involving wrestling and shoubo. Shoubo was a kind of hand-to-hand combat. Shou meaning hand, bo, that's another word for to wrestle. Competitions involving hand-to-hand combat between soldiers was already common by the Eastern Zhou, more or less 770 to 255 BCE. Those times were very violent. By the end of the Warring States period, 256 BCE, Sun Tzu's Art of War had already been written, the Hundred Schools of Philosophy, the Bai Jia, had come and gone. And as you recall from that nine-part history of Chinese philosophy series, the emergence of these knights errant had happened. These wandering knights were the people who launched a thousand wuxia kung fu novels. These shi, or knights, were not only the base from which the whole Ru school of philosophy emerged, of which Confucius was the most famous name, they were also the first to begin the teaching and dissemination of their knowledge of armed and unarmed combat. An aristocrat, and these sure all came from aristocratic backgrounds. They grew up knowing this stuff. It was all part of the program. Remember the Liu Yi from the philosophy series, the six arts, the six things you had to know growing up if you were a male aristocrat with any chance of a future ahead of you. Li, le, she, yu. Shu Shu, understanding the rites, music, archery, charioteering, calligraphy, and math. Yeah, archery, that was the skill a martial artist had to know above all else, in the Bronze Age at least. Even Confucius knew how to handle a bow and arrow, and the great sage maintained that a proper Junzi, or gentleman aristocrat, as defined by the Ru school, should be well-versed in both Wen and Wu letters, and martial arts. Wu meaning military or martial. Shu meaning arts. Wu Shu, martial arts. The seven major weapons of this age, the Zhou, were the Gu, it's a dagger axe, Ji, a halberd, or a weapon that combined a Gu and a Mao, a Mao being a, a pike or a spear. You also had the Bi Shou, a kind of a dagger, a Fu, which is an axe, and a yue, or battle axe, like a halberd. Later on in the Sui came the qiang, or long spear. It's also the character for gun. The peasantry, uh, they had no use for these martial arts. They had a pretty set job. And certainly they had no money to buy weapons or pay fees to learn these skills. Martial arts was purely something practiced, taught, and performed by the upper crust. Only they owned weapons. Only they knew how to use them effectively. That was a major distinction between the nobility and the rest of society. The ability to fight and to kill. And for the entirety of China's feudal history, that's what these knights did. They were brought up in a very rigid system, learned the six arts, and served their feudal lord. And when the Zhou ruling house started to lose its authority and central control over China, which back then was about 20% of the size it is today, these nobles who served the Zhou king loyally at first started knocking each other off to take over their land so that they could ultimately knock off the Zhou and become the one kingdom to rule them all. 
So it was a constant period of warfare. Gunpowder was still more than a thousand years in the future. Combat was all up close and personal. And these knights were good at their job. Some were magnificent. And when the time came and a neighboring kingdom or state invaded another, it always came down to these nobles and aristocrats serving their feudal lord to rustle up a militia, mobilize the men in the villages, and these farmers would grab a shovel, an axe, or whatever tools of the trade they had. And they were expected to go out and fight right behind the professional soldiers, but only the noble leading them and the knights that had sworn fealty to him. Only they had weapons and knew these tried and true fighting skills. And of course, they all had a familiarity with violence. But you remember from the philosophy series that all came to an end when the dozens and dozens of feudal kingdoms that sprung up during the spring and autumn and warring states periods finally dwindled down to just seven. All these defeated feudal lords were put out of business, and all the knights who had paid fealty to these vanquished lords had to hit the road, Jack. With no feudal lord to serve, these men became known as knights errant, or as I said, a sure, a, a wandering knight. Martial arts was solely about armed and unarmed combat, kill or be killed. The whole idea of a holistic martial arts discipline that nurtured the spirit and allowed one to carry out a degree of self-cultivation, that was in the future still. But the idea that certain martial arts contributed to one's self-cultivation, well, that seed began to grow during this Eastern Zhou Dynasty era that preceded the Qin. But the wandering Shi was a new phenom, and from these knights errant came the figure I'm guessing all of us have loved admired and respected in popular culture. Anywhere in the world he or she roamed. The righteous hero or heroine who was their own person, they belonged to no one, not tied to any single political authority. They feared not death and used their combat skills to avenge the wronged and defend those who suffered wrongful oppression. Yep. Kwai Chang Kane, he was one. Well, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a former knight. He came from a monastery, but you know what I mean. That hero who wandered the land, a lone wolf. That's where these stories began in China, with these knights errant and their deeds. These knights were all educated in the six arts. They didn't study Confucius because the great sage only died in 479 BCE, and it wasn't until the early Han Dynasty, centuries later, that he became all the rage. As far as when did wushu emerge as a popular form of entertainment, we first begin to get a whiff of this as far back as the war-wrecked Qin dynasty. The Qin, China's first imperial dynasty, 221 to 206 BCE. Not long-lasting as dynasties go, but it had almost 2,000 years of impact on everything that followed in Chinese history. In the Qin, the concept of wushu as entertainment first began to spread throughout the land. That short-lived dynasty was all about pushing the borders of China out to its more natural shape that we know of today. The military was the only way for Joe Blow to get anywhere in life. So becoming proficient in the martial arts, as taught in the military, was necessary and a fast track to possible glory. 
after the fall of the Qin and after Liu Bang and Xiang Yu had their final showdown at Gaixia in 202 BCE, there followed the Han Dynasty, which ran from the 200 years before and after the birth of Jesus. Here was the time in Chinese history where everything in the world of Wushu started to get written down in more detail. The official history of the dynasty, the Han Shu, the Book of Han, uh, mentions all kinds of known Wushu techniques for both armed and unarmed combat. Late Han, one milestone work produced was the Wu Qin Shi, the five animal exercise that took its inspiration from the movements of the tiger, deer, bear, ape, and bird. Five animals, five elements. Remember the Wu Xing, wood, water, fire, earth, metal? The special number five. These five Qi Gong exercises have been practiced for 2,000 years and had both a yin and yang routine that related directly to the health of your zang and your fu. That's one of the cornerstones of TCM, traditional Chinese medicine. Your zang are your internal organs, the heart, liver, spleen, lung, kidney. Your fu are your small and large intestine, gallbladder, bladder, and stomach. The zang are yin in nature, and the fu are yang in nature. Yin and yang. Let's not wander any deeper into the weeds here with all these TCM concepts, but you can see how Chinese martial arts began to wander way beyond just self-defense and fighting. Throughout a lot of these official dynastic histories, there's plenty of mentions of a large cast of martial arts masters. A lot of them are mentioned and lauded for their techniques and skills, but well, there's less mention of what these techniques actually were. But they did shine a light on what was the state of the art from century to century with respect to the development of hand-to-hand combat techniques and all manners of weapons. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Following the fall of the Han Dynasty, there was a long period of invasion from the north, from the Mongols and other nomadic tribes of the steppe. And they too, like everyone else in the world, had their own particular martial arts skill set that they brought to China and all these styles from lands north and west of China mingled with all the homegrown styles and techniques that had developed along the Yellow River Valley. Well, Han Dynasty ended in 220. Then there was the Three Kingdoms period and then the Jin. Now for Chinese martial arts, now things are going to start getting good. The Jin Dynasty didn't last long, 280 to 420. And in the 5th century... 
China broke into several pieces again, and this period of disunity is, of course, called the Southern and Northern Dynasties period. Nanbei Chao, 420 to 589. Lots of stuff starts happening in China. In the Wenxuan, it's a literary anthology written during the Liang Dynasty, 502 to 557, that's when the term Wushu first appears. The term was mentioned in a poem, but it referred to Wushu in the military context only, not as a health improvement regimen, and not as a form of public entertainment or anything spiritual. Prior to that, the Chinese term for martial arts was initially called Wu Yi, which also translates to martial arts. In fact, the character for Yi and Shu both mean skill or art. But Shu, if you check the good book, the good applico, Shu also means technique, method, and tactics. So Wu Shu is certainly a more appropriate term. A couple things happened that were important to the development and later propagation of Chinese martial arts, especially the Kung Fu style of fighting, which in Chinese is called Kung Fu. The word Kung Fu first showed up in the West only during the mid-1960s. It was mentioned in an article in Punch magazine. In the old Wei Giles system of romanization, the word for Kung was spelled K-U-N-G. Pinyin, G-O-N-G. Fu, is still Fu, no matter Wei Giles or Pinyin. So Kung Fu in Chinese is pronounced Kung Fu. It's one of these words with more than one meaning, but for the purposes of this 203rd episode of the CHP, it means skill or effort. When did this Kung Fu word become best known as the characters for Kung Fu martial arts? That was a that was a 20th century thing. You know, the Oxford English Dictionary once defined Kung Fu as a Chinese form of karate. Ouch! In the landmark year of 495, the year of the dog, Northern Wei Emperor Xiao Wen sanctioned the building of the Shaolin Temple to honor the Chan monk Batuo. Chan is a Chinese homegrown sect of Buddhism that, in addition to China, really took hold in Japan and is known as Zen over there. Batuo was the first abbot of Shaolin Temple and Monastery. He was not a Han Chinese. He was maybe Indian or Central Asian. Batwa came to the area in 464 to spread Buddhist teachings. And the temple was built in the 470s and the monastery in 495. And thanks to the efforts of Damo around the 520s, it became a center for Chan Buddhism in China. And at this temple, the monks there developed their own style of Quan or boxing. It all began with Bodhidharma, or Putidamo in Chinese, 5th, 6th century. He's also referred to as simply Damo. Bodhidharma preached Buddhism wherever he traveled around Asia and brought Chan Buddhism to China and Kung Fu to Shaolin. All kinds of incredible legends and stories are told of Bodhidharma and what he did during his years at Shaolin. He died in 528, and ever since his passing, Shaolin Temple and the monastery became the headquarters of Chan Buddhism in China, and Damo is called the founder. As far as where Bodhidharma came from and when he came to China, there's only 
legends. Some say it was during the Liao Song, and some say during the Liang, 502 to 557. Some say he came from India. Some say Central Asia. He was called the Blue-Eyed Barbarian, the Bian Hu. Bodhidharma Damo is first mentioned in the Record of the Buddhist Monasteries, compiled in 547. It says he was Persian. In other writings, no one can agree on where he originated from. Damo is also considered the 28th patriarch of Buddhism, going all the way back to Gautama Buddha himself. And the Buddha lived during the time of Confucius and other greats from the Hundred Schools, who we mentioned in the nine-part history of Chinese philosophy series. He's the mythical founder of Shaolin Kung Fu. He's credited with first teaching the Buddhist-inspired Lohan Shibasho, the Lohan Eighteen Hands. This is the oldest form of Shaolin Kung Fu, a kind of eighteen Qi Gong exercises that's referred to in writings. There were two other Qi Gong exercises who, that were also introduced by Bodhidharma. The Lohan were the original five hundred disciples of the Buddha who went out into the world, like the apostles did for Jesus, and taught these lessons that they learned. Eighteen of these exercises, in particular, were embraced by Chan Buddhism, and for these eighteen, this Luohan Shibasho, that's what it's named for. Shaolin is famous for Kung Fu and Chan Buddhism. No small amount of effort has been expended over the centuries by these Shaolin masters to unify the two: Chan Buddhism and Shaolin-style martial arts. That's where we get the term Chan Quan He Yi. As the saying went, "Chen" that's Mandarin for fist, and has come to also mean boxing and fighting or fighting style. The Luohan Eighteen Hands covers different movements and postures, and these eighteen later became thirty-six. The Luohan Eighteen Hands covers different movements and postures, and these eighteen later became thirty-six in the Tang Dynasty and one hundred and seventy-three in the Song. By the Ming. There were eighteen different forms of Luohan eighteen hands that had eighteen postures each. So eighteen times eighteen equal three hundred and twenty-four postures to this art. But the original eighteen are what somebody studying Shaolin Kung Fu might start with today. Emperor Liang Wu Di, Emperor Wu of Liang, he reigned five hundred two to five forty-nine. He was a contemporary of Bodhidharma and a big time. Buddhist patron, supposedly, and according to some accounts, Emperor Wu actually got to meet with Bodhidharma. This is during the Nanbei Chao period, Northern and Southern Dynasties period. We all know from past episodes, this is when Buddhism had its great leap forward in China. As I mentioned, Shaolin Temple was founded 495 during the reign of the Northern Wei, one of the Northern Dynasties during Emperor Xiaowen's time. Shaolin Temple was built on the north face of one of the seven peaks of Songshan, on the central peak called Shaoshi. Songshan or Mount Song is one of the Wu Yue, the five great mountains of China. The other four being Taishan in Shandong, Huashan in Shanxi, Hengshan in Hunan, and Hengshan in Shanxi. Different character Heng. Now during the fifteen sixteen hundreds. Shaolin Temple was already renowned throughout the land, and even attracted tourists who would come to see the Gongfu that the monks there 
were already famous for. They called it Shaolin Chen Shi, Shaolin Fist Style. It was the fighting style developed and practiced at this temple to both Kung Fu and Chan Buddhism. All kinds of manuals and treatises on Wu Shu were written about all the new schools, styles, and techniques, both armed and unarmed combat. In 1784, this is during the Qing Dynasty, a book came out called the Boxing Classic, which named Shaolin Temple as the birthplace of Kung Fu. The Shaolin monks divided Wu Shu up into two parts: Nei Gong and Wei Gong, inner and outer Gong, or exercises that trained your internal organs and those that benefited your muscles and bones. It helped them internally. Nei Gong, Wei Gong. Weren't about striking, kicking, or killing someone with a weapon. A lot of what Wu Tang Gong Fu is all about concerns this Nei, this inner part. This Wu Tang style in Chinese was called Wu Tang Quan. Wu Tang in the old Wei Jiao system of writing Chinese is spelled W U T A N G, and those two syllables were later adopted. By the great hip hop band, the Wu Tang Clan, and they got the inspiration for that name from the 1983 Gordon Liu directed film Shaolin Yu Wu Tang, Shaolin and Wu Tang, which cast a light on the rivalry that existed between these two ancient schools: Shaolin style and Wu Tang style. Tai Chi Quan, Ba Gua Zhang, Wu Xing Quan were considered. Wu Tang styles, more mental than physical. Maybe the most famous part of Wu Tang style is the Wu Tang sword, a technique of sword fighting that began in the late Qing and carried forward into the Republican era. It's also called the Wu Tang Daoist sword. Wu Tang techniques are heavily inspired by Daoism. These Wu Tang swords ranged from. Twenty-six to thirty-six inches, depending on how tall you were. I've seen a few Wu Tang sword exhibitions before, and they are very exciting. Wu Tang style may or may not have originated in the Wu Tang Mountains in Hubei, south of where Shaolin Temple is located. That's what the legends and writings say, at least. Whereas Shaolin Gong Fu originated in Henan and was tied to Buddhism, Wu Tang style came from Hubei and was tied to Taoism. And in fact, was located in the Wu Tang Mountains, one of the four sacred mountains of Taoism. The other three being Longhu Mountain in Jiangxi, Qiyun Mountain in Anhui, and Qingcheng Mountain in Sichuan. That's another major distinction between the two styles: one tied to Buddhism, one tied to Taoism. Shaolin Monastery today. Has a total of six hundred and twenty thousand square feet, with seven main halls and seven surrounding halls. It has been visited by emperors and dignitaries, including the Tang Empress Wu Zetian, a Hall of Fame benefactor of Buddhism in、uh, China. In 1704, the Kangxi Emperor, on a visit to Shaolin Temple, wrote in his calligraphy Shaolin Si, which was displayed at the front gate of the temple. Russia's Pugilist President Vladimir Putin visited Shaolin in 2006. First foreign leader to ever do that. Anyone who has followed Russia's president knows all these martial arts publicity stills ain't only for show. He's a serious practitioner of judo. 
with the renown and importance of Shaolin as the center of the predominantly most popular Buddhist sect in China, it was inevitable that from time to time they'd get caught up in politics, which is always dangerous, especially when you ally yourself with the wrong side. Shaolin was no stranger to destruction. It had been burned down and rebuilt several times over the centuries. During the Red Turban Rebellion, late Yuan, early Ming, again by Li Zicheng at the start of the Qing, and later on in 1928 by the warlord Shi Yosan, yeah, the good old defector general, the Daoke Jiangjun, and of course during the Cultural Revolution... The Red Guards gave the place a once-over. So more of Shaolin Temple uh, when we discuss Wing Chun in the next episode. China enjoyed a nice stretch of prosperity, peace, and cultural development during the Tang Dynasty, early 7th century to the early 10th. Well, it wasn't always peaceful. But with all the Silk Road trade going on, it had created this dynamic where people from all parts of the world all came to the Tang capital at Chang'an, present-day Xi'an, and people from these faraway places, they got to see Chinese wushu displays. And many began studying it and brought this back to the lands far to the west where they had come from. One of the biggest game-changers in Chinese and well, world military history occurred during the Song Dynasty with the introduction of gunpowder technologies, Huoyao. They initially figured it all out in the Tang as far as the approximate ratio of saltpeter, sulfur, and charcoal. But the Song is when gunpowder came of age and the formula perfected. And the Chinese guarded this secret like, like Coca-Cola did with its secret formula. But unlike Coke, China's secret got out. It was a lot less complicated. This is where the differentiation was made between what were referred to as hot and cold weapons. Anything that used gunpowder was called a hot weapon. The invention of gunpowder didn't spell the end of the cold weapons business. Swords and other handheld weapons still kept getting better and better. And another thing, by this time, public performances and exhibitions of wushu were commonplace and no longer just something enjoyed within aristocratic circles. It had spread to the common folk, too. And once it permeated that mass of people and percolated for enough time, you began to see what became known as folk-based martial arts that emerged alongside the more deeper-rooted styles initially taught by the knights errant of yore and later elites, as well as at Shaolin and Wudang, Another headlining bit of martial arts history emerged during the Song, the Northern Song, that is. I blabbed on and on about this person in Part 7, uh, I believe it was, of the History of Chinese Philosophy series, Zhou Dunyi. He was one of the five founders of Neo-Confucianism. He brought us the Taiji Tushuo, the diagram explaining the supreme ultimate. The many are ultimately one, and the one is ultimate. He figured out how to tie the concepts of yin-yang, Confucian thought, and Taoism. That's quite a feat, but Zhou Dunyi was no ordinary person. This is the system from which Taiji Quan emerged. The iconic yin-yang symbol we all know is a representation of the ultimate, the Taiji. The Song Emperor Huizong, much was written about his love of these wu-yi spectacles. I don't think I mentioned that, however, in the 
four-part series I did on his life back in uh, 2014. The same amazing feats of skill, strength, acrobatics, and daring do, it was embraced by people back then as it is today. What so many of us in America have embraced, in China, they've been enjoying this since ancient times. Some argue America started with the settlement at Jamestown in 1607. 400 years ago. By then, the Chinese had already been practicing this art for more than a thousand years, and for many, this was also a form of local entertainment. Martial arts have always been fantastic crowd pleasers, and that's all over the world. So you could see how it unfolded in China, how weapons and the martial arts and and with each new innovation from stone to copper to bronze to iron to steel, Basic weapons became more refined and more deadly. And now in the Song Dynasty, one of the most golden ages China ever had, gunpowder gets thrown into the mix. Martial arts as entertainment, well, as I said, was already old hat. Going back to the most ancient forms of armed and unarmed combat, it had already been infused with yin, yang, qi, and the five elements. Now in the Song, beginning with Zhou Dunyi, and later with others who carried his thought forward, these natural forces became even further infused with Ru, Confucian, and Taoist philosophy. There's a bit of a hiatus during the Yuan. If you've listened to enough CHP episodes, you know the Jurchens put an end to the Song dynasty in 1127, but... The Song lived on to fight another day down in the southern part of China, and they hung in there by the skin of their teeth until the dynasty fell to the Mongols, led by Kublai Khan in 1279. Now, during this southern Song dynasty period, between 1127 and when the end came, as I said, in 1279, China got to have yet another period of magnificent cultural development, including with Wushu. But during the Mongol Yuan Dynasty, the authorities put the kibosh on anyone studying martial arts. And when I say anyone, I mean Han Chinese. The Mongols had their own wushu, and they were allowed to train. But for the conquered Chinese, no martial arts allowed. And there was a prohibition on the study of wushu. And this also included the ancient forms like jiao di. And not only that, owning weapons and all the tools of the martial arts trade... It was prohibited. It wasn't prohibited under pain of death, but the punishment was still severe. The Mongol to Han Chinese population ratio was such that, well, the rulers felt compelled to do a version of abolishing the Second Amendment. So during the Yuan Dynasty, all Han were prohibited from owning arms and practicing the martial arts. But that didn't mean that martial arts stood still. The workaround to this prohibition was that Although people couldn't own these weapons and couldn't train at home, it wasn't illegal to perform these skills on stage and to create a whole genre of theater and acrobatics that involved many different styles of wushu, both established styles and among those developing out in the countryside. And the prohibited weapons were simply redesigned as benign props, and what became the local entertainment was this or four-act poetic dramas that contained plenty of acrobatic pugilism. And during the Yuan, the reliable go-to topics were those that concerned heroes like Liu Bang and Xiang Yu and their Chu Han contention, anything Three Kingdoms, and later on, 
came the Shuihu Zhuan, or the Water Margin. More than a hundred of these Zaju plays from this time survived into our day. What serial was for podcasting? That's what Shuihu Zhuan, the Water Margin, was for mass interest of Wushu, by the common folk anyway. This book and the stories it contained fanned the flames like nothing else to popularize this art on a more mass scale. Peasants were illiterate, but the stories from this Chinese classic novel were told and retold in all kinds of public storytelling and other dramatic ways. After the Yuan fell and the Ming was established, 1368, these laws against Han Chinese owning weapons and practicing martial arts were rescinded. And like was so much of everything else developing in China, the Ming Dynasty was another glorious period for Wu Shu. More styles were introduced, and what was already practiced all over China continued to spread out amongst the masses. By the time of the mid to late Qing, interest in three of the more popular styles of Wu Shu, Tai Chi Quan, Ba Gua Zhang, and Wu Xing Quan, became even more widely embraced, and for the first time, 19th century, Chinese martial arts becomes less about the battle end of the art and began to gravitate more in the direction of health and personal fitness as well as organized competition, and, of course, for self-defense. By the late Qing and early Republican era, it was part and parcel of Chinese popular health and physical fitness culture. But not only that, this regimen was imbued with philosophy and other ancient teachings and provided a holistic way to keep everything in balance. And when I say everything, I mean the yin and yang. During the early Qing, the Kangxi period, along came a noteworthy Shaolin master named Wang Lang, who, through his observations of one of the most deadly animals in nature, for its size anyway, the praying mantis, developed this Tanglangquan, or praying mantis style of boxing. Throughout the ages, other animals had always provided the necessary inspiration to other masters who observed how they defended and attacked in nature. And some of these movements were adapted for the human body. And this had been going on for centuries, of course, but now in the Qing, relative recent history, 1644 to 1911, Everything old and new was being very carefully written down, illustrated, transmitted, and taught. Wang Lang's style was later referred to as Northern Praying Mantis. He came from Shandong up in the north. This is the style you've seen in a million kung fu movies where the fighter circles his prey and hooks his fingers in a certain way, one, two, or three fingers, just like a mantis. In fact, they call this the Tang Lang Goat. The praying mantis hook. It's used like a whip to deflect attacks and move with the speed of a mantis to attack opponents' vulnerabilities, just like in nature. The praying mantis style uses speed and a non-stop precision attack sequence. If there's a northern style, well, there's also a southern style. In the south, they call this praying mantis style Nan Pai Tang Lang Quan. You know who it said brought this style of Kung Fu to the south of China? The Hakka people. They originally came from northern and central China, but later made their home in and around southwest Fujian and northeast Guangdong, 
and their southern-style praying mantis technique was made for close-range fighting involving the fists more than kicking. Like I said, there were multiple styles. Even the Taipings and their rebellion that led to more than 20 million deaths in China, they too had their own styles and heavily promoted traditional Chinese martial arts within their ranks. During the Xianlong period, basically the 18th century, you had the rise of the White Lotus Society and a slew of other secret societies who emerged on the scene. And Wushu started to become associated with these organizations. Many of the members of these underground societies, like the Tian Di Hui, for example, the Heaven and Earth Society, they were anti-Qing in nature. And why were they anti-Qing? Because these Qing emperors were not Han Chinese. They were Manchus. And there had been resistance against the Manchu-Qing government practically from the day the dynasty was declared. In the Qing, late Qing especially, Chinese Gong Fu as a way of life and a path to follow that allowed you to achieve perfect inner and outer harmony. It really took off and spread as far and wide as the Chinese diaspora could take it, I guess, which is basically all over the world. One of the sects that emerged from the White Lotus Society was the Yi He Quan. Quan, of course, meaning fist or boxing or to box. And Yi He meaning righteous and harmonious. The righteous, harmonious fists, or as they were known in Western history, the boxers. This was perhaps the most well-known of all these patriotic, anti-foreign, anti-imperialist groups. It was a magnet for a lot of like-minded Wushu practitioners. And with the vilification of the boxers, after the rebellion was put down, it sort of gave martial arts a bit of a bad smell, but nothing that was long-lasting, though. Around the same time as the Boxer Rebellion, the national military exam system that had been practiced for centuries in China was done away with. Ever since the Song Dynasty, when gunpowder moved front and center to military conflict, traditional Wushu involving combat with cold weapons and hand-to-hand combat, that began to take a back seat. And in 1901, when the exam system was eliminated altogether, all of this traditional fighting was relegated to the arena of this folk wushu. The 19th century was where everything started getting organized, and practitioners of martial arts began to coalesce around different schools that practiced different techniques. Magazines, Journals, books, authoritative guides just exploded onto the scene. Gong Fu, as an entire way of life, became more and more popular. Late in the 19th century, Ba Gua Zhang, Eight Trigram Palm, was a style created or at least popularized by Dong Hai Chuan in the early 1880s. Dong learned the basics from Taoist priests, and later went on to teach this Bakuajang, eight trigram palm, in Beijing at the Imperial Palace. He was a giant in his day. Bakuajang has multiple styles, not just one, and they have their own weapons, and they gained early repute for the skill of their martial artists who supposedly could turn everyday objects into lethal weapons. Baguazhang, with its fluid, circular movements, is infused with all kinds of yin-yang theory, Taoist principles, meditation, breathing, and of course the I Ching, the Book of Changes. It teaches 
how to overpower opponents by using their aggression against them. Like Tai Chi Chuan, Bakwa Zhang is respected for its health-promoting qualities as a way to keep oneself in balance physically and spiritually. And it was Donghai Chuan who made it popular. This was one of the three main forms of Wudang Kung Fu. The most famous styles of Kung Fu by this time, no surprise, were the oldest and most established ones. Shaolin style, Wudang, Emei, Tai Chi, Xing Yi Quan, Nan Quan, or Southern Fist style, and Qigong, which I'm not discussing much in this episode, though the subject of Qi was fleshed out in the History of Chinese Philosophy series. May I humbly recommend that to any martial arts practitioners tuning into the CHP for the first time? You may like that. In 1928, the term for martial arts, wushu, was officially changed by the China nationalist government to guoshu, guo meaning country or nation. Martial arts became national arts or national technique. And these guoshu institutes were established all over China, nationally, and at the provincial and local level. And things were even further organized with standards put into place. And the controlling organization was called the Central Guoshu Institute, the Zhonghua Guoshu Guan. They sponsored competitions and wholeheartedly promoted Chinese martial arts. It wasn't like uh, WWF or anything, but thanks to these modern times and the efforts of this Zhonghua Guoshu Guan, there was a national awareness about martial arts, and more and more people began to embrace this millennia-old art, just like they do here in the U.S., in the world over. Another institute that did much to spread and build wushu both in China and internationally was the Jingwu Athletic Association, the Jingwu Tiyu Hui. This association has been around since 1910. It's also known as Chinwu, C-H-I-N-W-O-O. The Jingwu Athletic Association was a passion project of its founder, Grandmaster Huo Yuanjia whose objective was to set up convenient and reputable places where all Chinese who were interested can come and learn Gong Fu. In the earliest days of international competition, matches were arranged that pitted Chinese martial artists against Europeans with skills in wrestling, boxing, and other martial arts. In the 1920s, several of these Jingwu masters left China and spread out throughout Southeast Asia to offer their skills and techniques to students elsewhere wishing to learn. Jingwu, among other things, promotes three virtues, wisdom, benevolence, and courage. There are also ten concepts that they promote that collectively echo the words and deeds of the great Confucian philosophers. By 1949, Wushu became more of a sport. Competition became front and center, and every style, every school had their own competitions, their own weapons, and their own masters and grandmasters. Techniques were standardized, and because travel in the 20th century was simple and convenient compared to what it used to be, internationally, Chinese martial arts was embraced like never before, and soon there were regular international competitions. This year... Uh, end of uh, June 2018, this month, as I record this, will be the 20th anniversary of the International Chinese Martial Arts Championships. That's being held in uh, Orlando, Florida. There are a few other American associations that promote the sport and spread awareness. And as I indicated, 
not just here in the U.S. This big slice of Chinese culture is global in stature and a way of life for many of those the world over who have chosen to walk this path. Chinese Kung Fu and some of the martial arts, being as ancient as they were, well, they didn't fare too well during the Cultural Revolution. These arts and practices fell squarely within the confines of the four olds, the Sijiu. Old customs, old culture, old habits, and old ideas. Like a lot of intellectual and traditional Chinese pursuits, martial arts had to lay low during these years of chaos. A lot of books, ancient documents, and whatnot related to wushu were destroyed. And as I mentioned before, Shaolin Temple didn't fare too well at the hands of the Red Guards during the Cultural Revolution. A lot of Kung Fu masters, like a lot of teachers, had to put up with many degrading and humiliating actions taken against them. But eventually, these years of chaos did end. And like I said, today, around the world, Chinese martial arts is embraced by millions and millions of people for its long, proven effectiveness as a means of self-defense, exercise, internal and external health, and for all the wisdom that over the centuries wrapped itself around this most Chinese of cultural treasures. Let's put the bookmark in right here for now. Uh, Next episode, we'll mop up from this overview of the history of the development of Chinese martial arts. And then I'm going to zero in on the Wing Chun style and talk more about Shaolin Temple and the legendary Southern Shaolin Temple. All for next episode. Anyone new to the program, again, thanks for checking out the CHP. If you're only here for the Wushu and nothing else... Hey, why don't you go check out my uh, History of Tea 10-part series? You might like that. That's been featured in Cathay Pacific Airways in-flight entertainment system for something like two years already. There are also episodes on the Hong Kong triads, as well as a three-parter on the Tong Wars of New York Chinatown. And if your interest in Chinese history is peaked at all... Hey, baby, over 200 and something hours of audio waiting for you on my server. So, until the next time, you little beauties, Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off from the west coast of the USA, Los Angeles, California, imploring you once again to not walk away just yet and to join us next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.